Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, I'm Rachel Woody, and it's August 1st. We're at Roxanne Distributing Warehouse. I'm here with Michael Donovan this morning. And my first question for you is, why wine? How did you get into this industry? Well, I came into the Oregon wine industry from the other side of the fence. So I, for 30 years, I owned a restaurant and a wine shop in Ashland. And so it was called Chateau Lynn. It was a French restaurant, and we opened it in 1973. And um, of course, at the time, there weren't a lot of Oregon wines at all. And so the uh, focus of our wine lists in our restaurant and what we would sell was French wine and wines from around the world. And of course, California wine uh, started to really hit the fray as well. So it's, I've always come to it from that perspective of, of being a purchaser of wine rather than a producer of wine. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and so for, for, I had a unique perspective to watch the Oregon wine industry really grow from infancy to um, where they struggled with, of course, quality issues and, and uh, growth issues. And, uh, and then really began to hit their stride by certainly the 1980s. And uh, by the 1990s, it was really in full swing. So it's, uh, the, that's the perspective. I came to it from there. Uh, by uh, 2002, I had sold my restaurant and wine shop to my employees. And so I thought for sure I was out of the business. But no, all the wine business people kept pulling me back in. So uh, in 2003, I went to work with Roxanne Winery, which was a new winery just beginning in 2003. Could you speak a little bit more about your days back when you owned the restaurant and starting to to see people enjoy wine and perhaps the wine industry is getting going in California and Oregon? One thing that we found in our research is that the culture of, of drinking and enjoying wine just didn't really exist when it first started in the 60s and 70s. From your perspective as a restaurant owner and really starting to get into that, how have you seen that evolve and and what sort of factors do you think finally made it switch? Well, you're right. There wasn't much of a culture of food and wine Mm -hmm. in uh, certainly the 60s. By the 70s, I think there was a a sense that, you know, people really emulated uh, European models and so they looked at... uh, you know, if it was if it was French, it was really good. <laughs> so, I think that uh, and the French had a lot to teach us. They had a lot to teach us about the culture of food and wine, not only the pairing of of wine with uh, a meal, and mm-hmm. and because up till that point, alcohol alcoholic beverage was really not seen as something to enjoy with a meal. It was seen as something to drink, uh, to have. Uh, you know, an effect on your on your uh, psyche. <laughs> so, it, I think um, 
I, that was a really interesting trend to watch and as people began to actually enjoy wine as a beverage uh, to accompany a meal and also to, to relax to you know as, as in Europe they would drink wine to increase the appetite before a meal mm -hmm. and um, <clears throat> and I think that it, it went hand in hand with the whole movement of of actually uh, discovering what the foods that we had in this country had to offer as opposed to looking only at imported foods uh, as being quality. <clears throat> People began to discover with uh, you know proponents like James Beard and Alice Waters that actually there there was a, a, a whole foodie movement in the United States that, that needed to evolve and be discovered. And <clears throat> being I felt very fortunate being on the West Coast because that's really where the revolution took place and um, that it, people began to finally see the connection between um, the what is served to people and the farm that produces it. And I think that it, it just became kind of a full circle in terms of people realizing, oh yes, that our food is grown and it's it actually doesn't just magically appear. And so that it became a kind of a respect uh, building for people to, to, to discover the source of the food, to also find interests in, in ways that um, wines could play a part in that meal. So um, that was, it's, it's, it's been a very interesting evolution uh, from the early 70s till today when we all take it for granted that farm to table is kind of a, a, you know right. here to stay, but it, it wasn't always. And Michael, you're also involved with the Oregon Wine Board. Mm -hmm. Could you say how long you've been involved with the group and, and what that mission is and what that <coughs> means work-wise for you? Sure. The Oregon Wine Board, of course, is a, a quasi-governmental agency that is, uh, um, was really re-established back in 2003 as uh, the legislature and the governor kind of reformed it. Uh, prior to that time, it had existed as a um, an entity of the um, Oregon Department of Agriculture. <clears throat> and its purpose was always to um, do promotion and marketing of Oregon wine. And, um, and I, the, the former incarnation, which was called the Oregon Wine Advisory Board, uh, did pretty well, but of course it, it kind of functioned under another state agency. And I think there were probably disappointments and uh, perhaps disagreements about how that uh, functioned. By the year 2003, uh, the wineries really began lobbying uh, for kind of a semi-independent agency to, to operate on its own. <clears throat> and so the Oregon Wine Board came into existence. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, it today, it, its mission is still the same. Its mission is to promote Oregon wine, also to provide uh, funds uh, for research uh, to, you know, into both uh, viticulture and enology and uh, also education, whether it's education within our own industry or perhaps even as an adjunct to marketing, educating customers about and potential clients of Oregon Wine, what, what is going on. But, uh, and of course the funds uh, come into the Oregon Wine Board is a, through a revenue source that uh, it really has two uh, prongs. One is the grape tax for the grapes that are grown in Oregon and per ton. And then there's also uh, 
wine that is produced from those grapes and that's a gallon tax that uh, comes through. All, all told, it raises over a million dollars annually uh, that, that comes into us based on that formula. Uh, mm -hmm. Some years it's down if the grape crop is, is down and some years it's up. And uh, Fortunately, the industry has been growing, as we know. Uh, the industry, the Oregon wine industry has, has seen phenomenal growth, particularly since 2005, 2006. Uh, uh, the <clears throat> we had a economic uh, impact study commissioned by Full Glass Research, which showed that in 2005, uh, we've been tracking it, we had an yeah, economic impact of about $1.4 billion in the state of Oregon. Uh, by which we were really pleased with, by the way. <laughs> by by uh, 2010, uh, we had uh, eclipsed that to the tune of almost uh, double that, about $2.5 billion. And, uh, and that, of course, occurred simultaneous with maybe the worst recession we've experienced in our lifetime. Right. So Oregon wines are continuing to be discovered around the world. Um, the grape growers are continuing to produce better and better uh, crops as a result of the, the, the collaboration that's kind of a hallmark of the Oregon wine industry. Uh, of course, it began in the Willamette Valley. Well, I shouldn't say it began in the Willamette Valley. It actually began, as we all know, in southern Oregon at Hillcrest uh, with Richard Summer planting the very first uh, Pinot Noir that mm. was in the, in the state. But clearly, uh, the pioneers and David Letts and uh, others of uh, David Adelsheim and uh, uh, Dick Erath, those, those people were the true founders who, who really began uh, in the 1970s uh, planting grape varietals in, in earnest and, um, and, and discovering uh, that they needed to collaborate with one another to really discover uh, a lot of the better techniques that they could do. And we began to collaborate with other regions around the world. Uh, you know, I, I think the model in <clears throat> the Valley was certainly uh, Pinot Noir, so, um, you know, it was natural to reach out to, you know, and collaborate with those uh, grape growers and winemakers in Burgundy in France. Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, that resulted in, you know, uh, collaborations like the International Pinot Noir Celebration and, uh, and others that, that really began to cement that relationship and until, you know, the... Uh, 1980s when uh, the Duran family came from France and discovered that they really uh, felt that Oregon had a lot of potential and uh, they purchased land in the Willamette Valley and you know there the rest of Domain Duran Duran's story is uh, history. Mm -hmm. Looking at the Oregon wine industry from sort of the statewide perspective and speaking to collaboration have you heard of or seen that anywhere else in any of the wine regions in the world that that knowing that they needed to partner together in order to survive kind of thing or, or to grow i don't know that firsthand okay. i but my instincts tell me that that every quality wine growing region would depend at some level on collaboration uh, mm -hmm. you have to you have to discover things with your neighbor about what's growing. What what are you really? What are you discovering? Why? What mm -hmm. problems are are you encountering that, and how do you overcome them? I think that that's uh, farmers. I think have a natural ability to communicate that. Uh, it's it's after all they're 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 discovering how best to grow a plant, 
and how best to harvest a fruit that comes off of it. And I would think that the best wine growing regions in the world uh, have, uh, have found uh, you know, some kind of enrichment by that kind of collaboration. However, human nature being what it is, I'm sure there's plenty of cases, including here in Oregon and, uh, and in Southern Oregon, where that's not the case, that people feel insulated and you know, wanna, wanna keep the, the secrets to themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I, that's really the exception. It's not the rule in Oregon. I think uh, that's where my experience comes from, is, is here in what I've seen in Oregon, is that people have always collaborated and, uh, and still today uh, do it. We have, uh, <clears throat> grape growers who meet together and um, co-opt funds together so they can bring in consultants, uh, they can have tastings of the wines that are coming from those grapes, the same for the winemakers, winemakers are having technical tastings together. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that's the real key of how we began uh, to move ahead in Oregon and in Southern Oregon of course we're, we're probably a good 10 to 15 years behind in terms of that uh, um, movement and the momentum that, that mm -hmm. uh, has experienced. So, but in my 10 years in the industry since 2002 to this year, 2013, we're really seeing, I think, uh, now the fruits of all that collaboration. And mm -hmm. grape growers are, are doing a much better job uh, from all the way to the um Umqua, all the way through the Rogue Valley. They're understanding the microclimates that exist here. Southern Oregon's different. We don't mm -hmm. have a, you know, a consistent climate throughout our region. It's, it's you know, it may be one of the most diverse uh, geographic landscapes for grape growing anywhere in the world uh, in, within this region. And you know, the microclimates and the valleys and the soil types and the, the water tables, I mean, it's, uh, they, that it's, it's challenging, but at the same time, it, it is, uh, it's very rewarding because it's so diverse that people can really find um, extraordinary environments in which to grow a wide variety of grapes. I'd like to continue with that last thought. Uh, something we've been exploring with this project is Southern Oregon, there, there's so much diversity here versus Willamette Valley, which is, you know, Pinot Noir is sort of the, the poster child varietal there. In Umpqua, we were saying, okay, it's the land of the hundred valleys. Is it the land of the hundred varietals? And do you need to have one varietal as an identity? Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are. <laughs> well, we don't have a hundred varietals yet, but we're very close. I yeah. think I, last I heard there was about 72 varietals uh, being uh, grown and experimented with in Southern Oregon, which is mm -hmm. an extraordinary number. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it could be well over a hundred if people wanted to plant some <clears throat> new uh, kind of obscure Italian varietals, which mm -hmm. they probably will. Uh, but I think that um, in answer to your question, no, I don't believe that Southern Oregon will ever have an identifiable uh, single varietal in which mm -hmm. we hang our hat. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, much like other regions um, uh, that are challenged by that same lack of monovarietal uh, identity, for instance, Napa clearly is, is Cabernet is, is king. Mm -hmm. I think uh, in Sonoma even, there are people who believe that Chardonnay is, mm -hmm. is, is the varietal. But there's plenty of people in Napa that will tell you that there's other great varietals that do very well. I think that uh, Paso Robles, I know, when, when they began to really focus on trying what are we doing, they were doing, like us, a lot of different varietals. And, uh, I think there are some people who, like us, believe that in this warmer weather uh, climate in Southern Oregon, that Rhone varietals do very well. I would think 
where there won't be just a single varietal, there'll probably be classes of, of wines, that uh, varietals that, that mm -hmm. will gain attention. I think the Rhone varietals from Southern Oregon will be a lot of what we stress uh, uh, in the next few years. Uh, we've found great success with Syrah and with Viognier mm -hmm. and with blends of white blends of Marsan and Roussan and Viognier. So um, <clears throat> I would imagine uh, along with Grenache we'll, we'll see uh, that continue. Um, and of course we know that uh, Iberian Spanish varietals uh, have have been uh, wildly successful as they've been promoted by Earl Jones from Abacella. Mm -hmm. um, Roxanne grows Tempranillo has found a lot of success with it. I I, I personally think Tempranillo and and some of the Spanish varietals like Alberino will mm -hmm. continue to find uh, a place. Um, whether they they are so mainstream is yet to be seen, but. Uh, in terms of the elite sommeliers that exist out there throughout the, the country and, and restaurants, these are the varietals that catch their attention. And, and to some extent, they are the vanguard of the people who begin to touch the, the more general public uh, consumer who begin to say, you know, when, when Viognier begins to break through, it's because these other people who've kind of been mm -hmm. on the cutting edge uh, have, have led them that way. So. My hope is that, and, and we're already seeing that with Tempranillo and uh, Alberino, there's there's other uh, blends, and of course Grenache has seen that same follow through. So, but um, I don't think there'll ever be a single singular varietal from Southern Oregon. As we you know, we do uh, very warm weather uh, red blends like Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc and Merlot and Malbec and. So the Bordeaux varietals occupy a, a, a very important piece. In fact, Roxiane's signature wine is called Claret, and which is a Bordeaux varietal uh, blend of all six of the varietals that are permitted to be called Claret in Oregon. And I think that, um, you know, I don't want to give short shrift to the Bordeaux. I think that we'll continue to see those uh, and we'll, we'll probably even see single varietals of Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc uh, flourish here. But mm -hmm. uh, it'll be a, a very diverse palette that, that we paint from. So I know that the industry has done a lot to get the word out um, as far as the newer varietals and having those become more mainstream. How much would you say is also an education in the consumer's palate? Does the consumer's palate evolve? Are there educational efforts from the wine industry for the consumer? I don't know if that's a good question, but mm -hmm. do you have anything to say on that matter? Oh, it's that's our job. Mm -hmm. our, our education is our job. Uh, if you're a salesperson, your job is as a teacher to go out mm -hmm. and and to uh, let people experience with their own palate mm -hmm. uh, what the new wines are. So, um, and it takes. It's a very long curve. <laughs> I wish I could say it will happen immediately, right. but uh, it's it's not. I mean, Alberino is Earl Jones will contest to you know people have to taste it, and then because they don't first they have to pronounce it, and then they have Viognier's the same way, and then they begin to to discover that oh you know that Viognier has a viscosity and and a texture not unlike Chardonnay when it's made in a certain way because it's a it's a it's it's a big wine mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. a white wine. And uh, they begin to think of it as alternatives to more classic approaches to drinking Chardonnay or uh, other varietals. So 
it, but the curve is long and it takes years in order to capture that consumer awareness. And the burden is on the wineries and on the, the marketing and on the salespeople to go out and find avenues and, and shows and, and venues where we can actually capture enough of the public's attention to let them taste these wines. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly doing that, and it's uh, and it takes a lot of money. And uh, of course, in Oregon, that's always a challenge because mm -hmm. Oregon is the third largest producing state in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a neck and neck race with New York for who's in third place, but it's nonetheless Oregon's right up there. We are a major wine producing region in the United States and in the world. And um, the, our challenge is that most of the wineries are family owned. Most of the wineries, uh, majority of the wineries, produce less than 5,000 cases a year. That's just minuscule compared to what is occurring in California or New York and Washington, where uh, the wineries are much, much larger. I mean, <clears throat> producing tens of thousands of cases, if not hundreds of thousands of cases of wine. Mm -hmm. So the, the amount of, of marketing dollars that are there for, to send people out, uh, to travel, to uh, you know, uh, distant locations is, is, is a little bit of a struggle. And that's where we have to rely on organizations, regional organizations, uh, whether it's the Willamette Valley Winery Association, the Southern Oregon Winery Association, the uh, Columbia Gorge Association, the Walla Walla. It's, those have to take the lead, but working hand in hand with uh, the Oregon Wine Board in, in terms of being the umbrella organization that facilitates and helps them. It's really not the Oregon Wine Board's job to sell wine of any particular region. It's to promote the state as a whole. Mm -hmm. That's a difficult balancing act sometimes because uh, you know there are those people who believe we need to go promote this particular varietal and or this particular region. and. Um, that's not our job. And it's uh, given that it's comprised of nine individuals who are appointed by the governor based loosely on a geographic representation of the state. Uh, none of us come to the table at the Oregon Wine Board representing Southern Oregon or Walla Walla. Mm -hmm. We represent the whole state. And we always have to, of course, remind ourselves that. <laughs> so. Right, but on the bigger collaboration hat as opposed yeah. to the regional hat. Yeah, I mean, we always, I'm sure, in the back of our minds, uh, want to make sure that the, the areas we're most familiar with and we come from get a fair shake in, in uh, whatever's being discussed and allocated. But I think that it's, it, the, the industry has done a good job. There really is not a lot of division within the industry that, that I've experienced in recent years. I think, if anything, there's a greater awareness that uh, brand Oregon is important. And some people believe that... Uh, you know, Oregon equals Pinot Noir, and that's fine. That's a wonderful marketing message. But Oregon actually, to me, equals quality grapes and wine. And mm -hmm. uh, that's the message we have to get out there. Uh, we have to get the message out there that our wines will compete on the world stage mm -hmm. with any region, whether it's from Tuscany, whether it's from Burgundy or Bordeaux or Alsace or Australia or New Zealand and, and Chile or Argentina. I mean, it's, uh, we have to be at a, at, a, at a point where our quality is, is at least uh, fairly representative of a price point that, that the consumer can look at and say, you know, I, I want to buy that wine. That's, uh, that's a wine that I'll drink uh, maybe not every day, but I'll, uh, I want to I experience that region. Mm -hmm. 
and you may have touched on this, but as far as business strategy goes for the wineries and perhaps the more remote areas of Oregon, how do they get over the hurdle of maybe not having a large metropolitan center or perhaps not as much tourism coming through? What are some of the other strategies of being able to get the wine out or sell or import? Export, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well export, we'll get to export. That's almost a, a separate subject. But one of the things that has really uh, allowed the Oregon wine industry to grow has been the way the laws were originally uh, devised in terms of allowing small family wineries to self-distribute within the state. So they, they, you know, the wineries are allowed to go out not only to sell to people who come to their tasting rooms, but they can, they can actually go out and self-distribute to restaurants and wine shops and markets that they, they want to. <clears throat> now, that's, that's a lot of costs associated with that. It's not the most efficient, but it is, you know, if you're just beginning, that there, there's a way to do that. Uh -huh. And then, of course, the next step is to go into distribution, uh, to find a distributor that does that for you. And uh, so that, that takes a lot of the onus off. You don't recover as much of the, um, the, the actual sale price mm -hmm. as you would if you were doing it yourself. But when you couple it with what you're not paying the expense, it's probably a wash. And uh, in the, the main thing that I think all wineries, small or large, grapple with is the fact that you, you, you have existing inventory that doesn't do anyone any good sitting in a warehouse. You know, it has to flow through, it has to. So cash flow is, is probably the most important uh, aspect of the business that everyone watches in the wine business uh, because it's intensely uh, uh, capital intensive uh, to not only produce the wine, to, to bottle it, to put it in storage for a year to two years. Uh, and then of course there's the time it takes to sell it. So it's, uh, you, you have to, it's a very um, delicate balance between how much you produce, knowing how much you can sell. So if you grow too fast and, and you expand beyond what the demand is for out there, you're like in any industry, you're going to find yourself uh, in, a, in a really tight cash flow situation. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's, you know, wine <clears throat> people who enter into the wine business in Oregon, being that they're from small families, uh, they have 15 acres of land, they, they want to farm it, they're passionately involved in it. You know, they're, they're called upon to not only understand farming, which is intensely uh, complex uh, if you want to do it well, but then they're called upon to understand all facets of business and marketing and, and sales, which is, uh, it takes a long time. And I think we're fortunate now, we have a lot of people who are uh, coming into the industry, and of course there's a lot of collaboration on this too. I mean, mm -hmm. Roxanne has always benefited from the fact, and I think the industry has benefited uh, by our ownership being willing to uh, allow us to collaborate and, and really give as much knowledge as we've been able to determine, because the philosophy has always been about, you know, as the tide rises, all the boats will float, and uh, the uh, our my boss, the, uh, the owner of Roxanne, the founder of Roxanne, Jack Day, has told me that from the first day I walked in the office, that we need to do as much as we can to collaborate with other people in the Oregon wine industry. And um, so he's always been very supportive of my role in that. Mm. And then you said export is another major question on its own. <laughs> well, it, Oregon has finally evolved to the point where we, we are not only going out after national markets around the country mm -hmm. in New York and 
Houston and Chicago and Atlanta, but we're, we're actually now finally looking at, and we have been for some time exporting wine to Japan. I mean, the state of Oregon has uh, is probably 30 wineries that probably have been at the vanguard of, of export. And um, I would say 99% of those, are, of course, are Pinot Noir producers. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and they have established a foothold, not only in uh, markets like Japan, but begun to uh, penetrate into mainland China and Shanghai, and uh, of course in Hong Kong. But uh, we're also looking now, we're see we're gaining a little more traction uh, with the fact that uh, Korea is now uh, in uh, an expanding market, as is uh, Canada, which really we haven't focused a lot on. And right. Canada is actually a great market for Oregon wine. and. Um, um, all of them present uh, complexities in terms of entry into uh, the marketplace, but that's just discovering how to do it and learning how to do it. And probably the, the most uh, recent uh, successes of Oregon wine being export uh, have been occurring in Scandinavia, in Denmark, and in Sweden, <clears throat> as well as the UK. Uh, has, the UK has actually been... Uh, you know, an export market for some time, but I think it's it's beginning to to come back into the, the fray. And this year we had uh, really did our first uh, uh, trade show in Germany. So I I, I see that is you know um, those are the wineries, and and they will for the most part by and large be all Pinot Noir producers for the next five to eight years. But I think for those of us in regions that don't uh, necessarily are known for Pinot Noir. Uh, but for other varietals like we've been talking about, we need to, to take advantage of that. I always liken it to the, our marketing initiatives being kind of following the tip of the spear. The tip of the spear is definitely Pinot Noir in any marketplace we go, but uh, we can follow right behind and we don't have to, to say anything derogatory about Pinot Noir for God's sake. That's what brought us to the party. Uh, it's it's all about you know now you've tasted Oregon Pinot Noir now why don't why don't you try an Oregon Syrah uh, mm -hmm. or a, a, a you know Tempranillo. Since your entry into the industry, how would you say the Oregon wine industry has evolved, and similarly Southern Oregon how how has that evolved? How have they grown? Well, the, the growth has been exponential, I mean, in terms of Oregon, uh, the industry. I mean, we're, I, you know, I think the official number today in 2013, in August, is, is that we have just under I think, 480 wineries. Um, <clears throat> we have uh, probably close to 900 vineyards. Um, so it is, uh, I mean, that growth has, has been dramatic in the last 10 years. And I think that that will continue. Uh, Southern Oregon um, is, is, and I've mentioned, it's not known for Pinot Noir, yet mm -hmm. the majority of all the grapes that are grown down here are Pinot Noir. And uh, of course, it's, it's kind of a little known secret that uh, almost all that Pinot Noir is shipped north, and uh, in, in which we love, because I mean, there are years when the Northern Oregon producers really rely on us uh, to give them the ripeness and the color and the flavors that might have eluded them due to a cool a growing season. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of collaboration has been very positive. And so uh, there isn't that sense that, I mean, I think Northern Oregon really sees Southern Oregon as a benefit to them. And, uh, 
And there's plenty of people experimenting with other grape varietals now. I mean, uh, really stellar Pinot Noir producers who are actually buying some of our Rhone varietals and making Syrah or making Viognier. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, that that collaboration has grown closer and closer. So as uh, the evolution, I, I, that's why I'm so optimistic about the Oregon wine industry. I mean, it's just, it's, it's at a cusp where I think we're, we're going to just continue a very uh, strong momentum upwards in terms of uh, both the growth of the industry. As we know, we just recently had a large California producer come into Oregon, mm -hmm. uh, make a major purchase. <clears throat> and, and I think that's another hallmark of Oregon, that we're able to, to be welcoming and to be able to say to people, you know, we're thankful and grateful for your investment in our industry because mm -hmm. it's going to take a lot for us to, to, to continue to grow and to, to keep this momentum going. So mm -hmm. we, we welcome anyone who genuinely comes in to uh, Oregon and really wants to produce quality wine. Mm -hmm. As you know, the Oregon Wine History Archive is not quite two years old, and so we've delved into the Willamette Valley history, and of course now we're getting into Southern Oregon. What other regions of Oregon are, are up and coming, or perhaps you would give us advice to focus on next? Well, clearly the Columbia Gorge is, mm -hmm. is uh, not only is it probably the most stunningly beautiful region, uh, you know, as it's just astride the Columbia River and the, the mountains and the rock formations, but, you know, there they they've also uh, are capable of growing warm weather varietals uh, and uh, at, uh, you know, higher elevations in some cases, but the, the quality of wine is, is, is really striking as, as to how it's evolved in the last 10 years as well. And Walla Walla is uh, sometimes way out of our, our vision uh, sight line because it's, uh, it's a long ways away. It's way over there in Eastern Oregon. However, it, we, you know, I even think the, the wineries in Southern or in Eastern Oregon tend to associate more with their Washington counterparts just across the border. But we always have to remember it is one Appalachian. It, it actually is a cross-border uh, Appalachian with Washington and Oregon wineries together. And uh, they're producing stunning wines. And uh, some of the largest and uh, most technologically advanced vineyards are, are being planted and grown in, uh, uh, around Milton Freewater. So I think there's a lot of stories there. Uh, great. Uh, great personalities, uh, whether it's Norm McKibben, or it's the Leonetti family, or it's the, uh, the club family from a Cole 41. Uh, there's just a, a, you know, it's endless over there. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the number of people that have, have watched a, a previous uh, uh, area that was, uh, the area that was previously focused on wheat as, as the primary form of agriculture, and, and now has shifted into something else. And, uh, and of course, the stories over there, those two forces didn't always get along <laughs> as they came together. And, and today, I think there's, there's now more of the, the story, uh, you know, it'd be an interesting story to, to tell how mm -hmm. those two um, forms of agriculture kind of collided, but then began to integrate. So, uh, mm. but uh, that and, um, you know, there's, um, there are sub-appellations that are growing up all around, both within the Willamette Valley and down here in Southern Oregon, uh, in Elkton, uh, for instance, mm -hmm. just the newest appellation uh, in, uh, in Southern Oregon. So 
Um, <clears throat> but I think those are the, the major one. There is a, a, an Appalachian in eastern, far eastern Oregon called Snake River. Oh, yes. uh, doesn't have very many wineries, but uh, I think that, you know, who knows? Ten more years, possibly. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, Michael, that was my formal set of questions for you. Is there something that I should have covered or should have asked you? No, well, let's see. I mean, you're, you're focused on, <clears throat> the only thing I did, perhaps didn't uh, mention is, is um, there is also the uh, link between the Oregon Wine Board and its organization that's a membership organization called the Oregon Wine Growers Association. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in terms of putting that in some kind of historical perspective, that's very important because people often talk about the Oregon Wine Board as being, well, you're responsible for the, the whole state of the, the, the wine industry. And that's not true. <laughs> uh, we can't, as a, as a government agency, we can't go lobby the government uh, to, for legislation that's coming up or regulatory. Um, things that may, may be being presented that could be beneficial or harmful to our industry. So there's a separate organization called the Oregon Wine Growers Association. And the nine-member board of the Oregon Wine Board is also the same board that sits on that uh, oh, organization. Okay. And not enough people know that. And so I always take the opportunity to talk about that because it's a membership-based, it's totally driven, and the in, all the income is, is from that membership base. So not every winery and not every vineyard in Oregon is represented by the Oregon Wine Growers Association like the Oregon Wine Board is. Because mm -hmm. it's a government agency, we represent every one of them. But when we take off that hat and put on the OWA hat, <clears throat> that's the hat that allows us to go into legislative committees and talk about um, the impacts of what this proposed legislation would be to our industry. We can uh, lobby very effectively for it. We can, uh, we can draft legislation. We can contribute money to political parties, to um, individuals within the legislature, which is what we do. Uh, we also uh, you know, provide a, an array of benefits to our members, whether it's from group health insurance to uh, different types of services that we can offer them for um, you know, research and education. So that's, that's just as important a role uh, as, as the Oregon Wine Board for promotion. Uh, uh, we just, of course, spent the last uh, four years uh, coming up with legislation that uh, was enacted and signed by the governor this, last su this summer, which went into effect immediately which governs how wineries can function on EFU land and uh, on agricultural land. And that sounds so benign and so easy, but yet it was a firebrand issue that, that people felt passionately about uh, for the last four years, which comes down to how much commercial activity is suitable on exclusive farm use zone land. Mm. And in Oregon, we're very, very sensitive about what activity takes place on farmland. We want to preserve farmland. I think we all agree to that. Mm. But for the most part, um, that's what makes us unique because you can't just go in and build something on farmland. Uh, you have to get go through an array of, of process to in order to change anything uh, from farming use to another use. Mm -hmm. Oregon wineries, however, have the sole uh, 
exception to that uh, by a, virtue of a law that was passed in the legislature in the 1980s, which allows for a winery of 15 acres, uh, vineyard winery of 15 acres, to, to have a tasting room and a winery as a, an outright approved use, not as one that has to be, you apply for, it's one that mm. you're granted. And, mm -hmm. But it was always, uh, and that's what really allowed for the growth of our industry. Uh, it, it, it just allowed anyone who could come in and purchase and plant 15 acres to then take the next step without any appeals or going through a, a complex land use process to be able to uh, farm that land, but also to have a, a venue, a commercial venue, in which to sell the products that we added value to, and which were the grapes and, and putting mm -hmm. them into wine. And, <clears throat> but we didn't carefully define what that was in the 1980s. By the late 2000s, we, we were beginning to realize that, you know, there were other things that were happening on agricultural land, like um, corporate events or weddings and things right. that were, were taking place that we really needed to probably put some kind of definition to, to make sure that farming was our primary purpose of being out there and not that we're running a a large event center. Mm -hmm. So we did that, and I think that that's been a real benefit. And we did that with uh, much of the consensus of the industry. It took us a long time to reset consensus. And I always like to say that, uh, you know, it's probably, I think, the only bill that's ever passed the legislature in recent memory that passed unanimously. There were no dissenting votes. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that, that was remarkable. And, mm -hmm. But it was a testament to the Oregon Wine Growers Associations, our lobbyists, our legal team, who, who really took the time, and I mean years of time, right. to build that consensus. And uh, so that's the other side of what we do in the industry, uh, besides just go out and sell wine or promote wine. We have to make right. sure that the foundation for which we're going to do that, from which we're going to farm land, and how we're going to grow and produce wine is, mm -hmm. is also one that's protected by state laws and, and, and not hindered in any way. Wonderful. So you're incredibly busy. <laughs> it's been busy, yeah. <laughs> Great. Uh, do you have anything else to share with us? Oh, no. I'm just... You, yeah. I accept it all out. Okay. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.